Hello, everybody. We're just opening the doors to let um, let our participants in uh, for the next of the open dialogues on um, things COVID uh, related. And appreciate all of your continued participation in this. Uh, we have uh, the speakers and I and the Don and the ISUSA uh, staff have a discussion the day before and we talk about, well, should we keep doing this or not? And, and I think the consensus is there still is a lot of interest and there's still a lot of challenges that we uh, realize as we watch the news every day and talk about it. Um, so um, this is another of the series uh, of these and I'll, I'll mention the, uh, the discussions that we have. I'm, first of all, I'm Paul Bulberding from, uh, from UCSF. Um, and uh, we'll let our friends introduce themselves, but we have Peter Chin Hong from UCSF, Carlos Del Rio from Emory, uh, and uh, Bonnie Maldonado from Stanford. So uh, maybe in that order, Peter, uh, Carlos, and then Bonnie, introduce yourselves. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Peter Chin Hong. I'm professor of medicine and the associate dean for regional campuses. And during COVID, um, took care of a lot of uh, COVID patients as well as was involved in many of the clinical trials um, that we used to have agents to treat COVID patients with. Great. Carlos? Carlos Del Rio, I'm a professor of medicine at Emory University. And I, you know, like Paul and many others, I've been a longtime HIV researcher. But when COVID hit, we all became COVID doctors and we've been doing. I've been doing, you know, research, education, writing opinion pieces, and really trying to advance policy and, and practice and trying to understand, you know, this very complicated situation in which recommendations are changing all the time as science evolves and trying to see how science influences practice, I think is really one of the most important things that we need to do. And it's hard to keep up with, it feels like we're drinking from a fire hydrant with yep. COVID. And I, I, all of our uh, discussions are kind of, you see them all over the media, uh, commenting and uh, sharing their expertise. I'll just add that Carlos uh, recently was elected to the um, American Association of Arts and Sciences. Is that the full title, Carlos? America, yeah, American Association for Arts and Sciences. Great, which is a really a singular uh, honor. So congratulations, Carlos. Thank you. Uh, and Bonnie, tell, tell us about you. Yeah, hi everybody. It's great to be here. I hope you have, you're having a good Friday afternoon or evening. I'm a Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Diversity at the Stanford University School of Medicine. And I'm the Taubey Endowed Professor of Global Health and Infectious Disease here. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist focusing on uh, global uh, childhood uh, diseases with an emphasis on vaccine effectiveness, work primarily with uh, polio, um, vaccine efficacy around the world and viral transmission of OPV, uh, looking at ontogeny of infant immune responses to measles virus and um, also working with rotavirus uh, vaccine effectiveness. So, uh, yeah. Super, and we're gonna get into not just COVID, but we might also talk about some other viruses affecting kids that we have been in the news in the last couple of weeks. So um, hold on for that. And uh, we, when we go into these dialogues, we have um, some issues that we know are going to be um, uh, of interest to the to the group, and uh, and we talked about this again in our planning session yesterday. And one of those that we would like this time to really spend 
more than a more than a passing uh, reference to is the whole issue of, of COVID and, and pediatrics, and especially some of the uh, confusion that continues around the disease and the vaccines and the treatments, um, and uh, and we won't necessarily start with that, but uh, uh, stay tuned because we definitely want to get uh, get to that uh, to that topic. So as usual. We have um, a lot of participants. Uh, we'll uh, try to watch the Q and A, the, the question and answer session section on your Zoom. Uh, if you have questions, um, put them in. I'll watch that and I'll try to, um, you know, decide which ones I want to try to address. I may comment on some of the participants who are friends of ours uh, uh, over the years. Uh, but 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 do that. I'm not going to promise that we're going to get to everything because uh, we got we collected uh, from the participants in, in your registration questions already, and I have kind of three very narrow spaced uh, 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 lists of, of of those questions. So we know there are a lot of issues uh, in, in terms of uh, things that uh, that continue to be in the news um, and and where I I do know there's a lot of interest. Uh, it's the it's going to start with let's start with the issue of the fourth booster. Uh, so um, uh, let's forget J and J vaccine for a while. That one is going to have been uh, been pulled away uh, now. Uh, so mostly we're we're talking about um, uh, the the uh, mRNA uh, vaccines in this country, the Pfizer and, uh, and the Moderna, uh, and we know that now we can uh, go from the third. To the fourth injection, if you want to call it that, than the first or second booster. Um, but there's been, I think, a fair amount of uh, uh, discussion about, you know, do I do the fourth booster now? Um, it's very available. Um, people over 50 and, and even under 50, if you want to say that you have some immunocompromising condition. Um, but um, is now the time to do that? Uh, we're now seeing another, you know, I don't know if it's a surge exactly yet, but we're certainly seeing an increase in some parts of the country here in Northern California for sure uh, in cases. Um, and so is now the time to do this? Is it better to wait? Um, and let me just toss that to the group, but let me I'll start with Carlos to, uh, to give us uh, his reaction to fourth booster, um, fourth dose. Who should get it? Oh, you know, I mean, Paul, it's, it's a very good question. When, when you read the literature, I think what becomes clear is that a, a fourth dose of an mRNA vaccine, uh, and most of the data comes from Israel. And, uh, you know, if you, what, the, what a, a, a fourth dose of vaccine does in people over the age of 65, it produces a small but significant decrease in the risk of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. It also gives a very short-lived, probably no more than six to eight weeks decrease in the risk of, uh, of acquiring infection. Now that a decrease uh, in risk of hospitalization, severe disease is not seen in people under the age of 60. And, uh, and in fact, when you look at the study, a couple of studies that have been done, uh, the, the people that received three doses continue to have very good protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And their protection against, against uh, infection really doesn't change by giving a fourth dose. So my recommendation is that if you're over the age of 65, 
or if you are severely immunosuppressed, get a fourth dose. And we can talk in the severely immunosuppressed whether a fourth dose or Evoshel makes more sense. But anyone who's not, you know, just a regular individual over the age of 60, 65, get a fourth dose if you have more than four, four to five months after your third dose. But other than that, I think if you're, you know, if you're a 45-year-old, otherwise healthy individual who got three doses, you're, you're well protected against severe disease from death, and you really don't add much by taking a fourth dose. Now, some people have said to me, well, is there a risk associated with it? If there's no benefit, will I, will I still have a risk? And probably there is no risk, but there's a theoretical immunological risk, which is, you know, developing immunological tolerance. At some point in time, vaccines start, you know, not having that impact that you want. So I would say in those situations, I would wait for the fall. I would wait for different vaccines to appear. And then I would think about getting a fourth dose. So let me just add that CDC just had a, a meeting uh, last month uh, to talk about the booster or boosters in this age group. And um, there's actually no evidence for tolerance, although I agree that it's something that we should look at. And especially what we see with regarding tolerance is when you vaccinate, when you immunize animals or humans very repeatedly over a very short period of time. So this is not the same thing, but that is a theoretical consideration. And really the risk may not be so big. The benefit, I think, is very clear in what Carlos said, that uh, for younger people, really, for example, if you're going to travel extensively, you're worried about maybe getting sick away from home, et cetera, then, you know, you could probably think about crafting a booster. Uh, but but I, I think you're absolutely right. That's the, the right approach. So but just to reveal also, the fact. I also add to that, the timing, timing the time of your booster is a little bit like trying to time the stock market. It's really hard to do. Uh, these days, <laughs> God, let's not talk about that. Um, so just to reveal kind of this, you know, my wife, Molly Cook and I are, are both very involved in, in all of this and just kind of, I got my booster and she hasn't quite decided yet to get here. I think there's a fair amount of, of discussion about, uh, about this issue and one that I think we'll probably uh, come back to. One of the things that's driving up some of this, and I want Peter to, uh, to weigh in on this is, uh, is again this increasing uh, case rate that we're seeing, even though testing is no longer being reported. So we're probably way under diagnosing new infections. Um, but it does seem as though, at least here in Northern California uh, and probably nationwide, we're seeing an increase in, in cases. What's going on? Is that, uh, you know, we hear about new variants. We don't, we don't focus on them quite as much as we did with Omicron, but um, tell us about, tell us about the variants. What are you seeing? And, and Carlos, or, or and, and uh, are, are you seeing, Peter, the um, cases in the hospital starting to increase, or is this just uh, a phenomenon of infection? Yeah, so thanks, Paul. I think first I'll describe what I view as the, what's happening in the country, and then locally, like I can talk about California and Bay Area. So what we're seeing in the country, of course, is a, rapid increase in cases by about 50%. We're start, starting to see a slight uptick in hospitalizations, particularly in the Northeast. But even in California, we're seeing like maybe 15% increase in hospitalizations, but the absolute number is really low. And to bring that to home, I'll just give you the UCSF story. So back in January, we were like 150 hospitalizations, many of them in the ICUs, not as much as in Delta, but a fair number. Today, we're at 23 hospitalizations, even though that's up from like maybe the high teens last week. One person is ventilated. And this has been going on for weeks. So it's not like 
people say, oh, there's a two lag stuff between cases and hospitalizations. We've been pretty much seeing a flat line in general, a slight maybe uptick. Um, and then from a variant perspective, of course, BA2 dominant, BA2.12.1 started off in New York, central New York, uh, up to more than 90% of cases there now, more than 50% in New York State. But we're starting to see it uh, in the south uh, and then going to the west. So in the country, about maybe 30% uh, of cases now, BA2.12.1. Um, why are we seeing a surge uh, right after Omicron? Well, I think the story of San Francisco is an interesting one, San Francisco County. So we're seeing like the highest numbers in the state, which is weird and slightly embarrassing for San Franciscans who prided themselves as being the most COVID woke uh, population. But I think what has happened is that, you know, many Not people- canceled think, at least. Yeah, it's, we're victims of our own success. So the people who stayed home, they can work from home. They avoided everything else. They got vaccinated and boosted, but then everybody started going out. Uh, so the other populations have had a fair amount of uh, ex natural exposure to infection. Uh, they have hybrid immunity. And now the people who were the most uh, careful are having the contacts. And to me, the, the case is really uh, divergent with say Central Valley, which had had the highest hospitalizations and cases forever. But right now in California, they have the lowest case rate and the lowest uh, everything. So that's one main hypothesis. The second, of course, is that we're doing more testing, but I don't really buy that per se as San Francisco or the Bay Area only. The third is just a generalized phenomenon of reopening. But again, that doesn't really make San Francisco stand apart. And then amongst that, the places where it's the highest cases are in the wealthiest zip codes in San Francisco, which again goes with that hypothesis of we're victims of our own success with this current BA2. But the other thing, Peter, to mention, and I think this is critical for all of us who are healthcare providers, is we're seeing higher rates of absenteeism from work, yes, not hospitalizations, yes. but people yes. are getting sick. So this is the early Omicron where we just saw lots of impacts on workforce, especially healthcare workers. I'm sure everyone else too. So I think that's um, another consideration, right, is how do we sustain a healthcare system? And and. And that's really true with schools, with workforce. And I think lots of outbreaks at proms and schools and, and, and workplace outbreaks. So I think that gets to what our goalpost is, right? We can be as a country saying we're focusing on severity of illness. But when you talk to people in the community and they're staying home to take care of people who are ill and they may get reinfected with, we can get to BA4 and BA5 in the future. Um, that's going to be like repeated people taking out of the workforce and we really need probably a better vaccine that's more responsive to this current spike protein or universal vaccine to really get to that goalpost. So um, one uh, one uh, comment that I heard recently, Slim Karim, who we all know is a big hero in the <coughs> HIV uh, uh, world based in, in South Africa, but has done a lot of epidemiology on COVID, uh, was speculating, and it's, it's just speculation, he admitted that, that you know, with the new variants appearing, uh, it, and with the apparent um, knock on wood uh, lessening of the clinical severity, uh, we could be um, entering a, a phase where, you know, where the bad days of the pandemic may be, may be slowing down uh, and we might see this chronic lower uh, severity illness and 
this whole issue of moving from the pandemic to endemic. Um, so maybe Carlos, you could start that. I'm sure that both of the others uh, have, have thoughts about that. Are we, are we getting to that point? Well, you know, the first thing that I tell people is that pandemics, there's no official mechanism to end pandemics. It's not like there's gonna be a parade or there's an official announcement from WHO, the pandemic is over. If you look at 1918, for example, uh -huh. pandemics end when, when the population says we've had it, right? It's over. And, and, and really when you don't see, uh, when, when people realize that, the, that the, the amount of cases is not enough to cause either disruption of healthcare and overwhelming healthcare or disruption of the economy. So it's gonna be very different between some populations and the other. I think about the HIV pandemic, right? In some areas of the world, HIV continues to be a major killer of young people. In other areas of the world, HIV pandemic doesn't exist, it doesn't cause a problem. So I think, you know, you can look at the HIV pandemic and think about it the same way. You know, there's still an HIV pandemic, but most people don't wake up in the morning in our country thinking about the HIV pandemic, except from very few communities where, where HIV is very significant, where, you know, we have 48 counties in which 50% of new cases are occurring. In those 48 counties, HIV, I'm sure, is something that people wake up thinking about, but in the rest of the country, people really don't. And I think the same thing happens with, with this, this pandemic, right? At this point in time, for many people, the pandemic is over. Now, what's gonna happen is what we're seeing and what Peter described is people were, were careful, they were, they were doing certain things, and at some point in time, they said, well, I'm vaccinated, now I'm gonna go back to normal and you know, doing my usual stuff and surprise, surprise, people are gonna get infected. So, but they're not gonna get sick. They're not, well, they're not gonna get severely ill. They're gonna get sick, but they're not gonna get severely ill. They're likely not gonna die. And then we will talk about what, what can we do then to, uh, to deal with those patients. I mean, we have treatments, we have other things we can do. It's not just about pharmacologic, non-pharmacological measures. There's other things we can do. And I think we're in a situation right now in which yes, for a lot of people, the pandemic is transition, but I wanna say that it has transitioned for those of us that have access to testing, have access to treatment, have, have access to, you know, we can still stay home. But for many individuals that are poor, they're, they're underserved, they have difficulty accessing, you know, migrant communities, uh, you know, African-American, black and brown communities, they have trouble doing many other things that we think it's, it's normal to do, to get tested, to get access to treatments, et cetera. Right. And, and therefore I worry that that as we say the pandemic is over, we're really forgetting the most, the most vulnerable populations. And, and the reality is that what you're gonna see with this pandemic is what we've seen with every other pandemic and think about the HIV pandemic, it's gonna become a pandemic of the poor, the underserved and, and, and those that have poor access. And that's what happens with infectious disease pandemics. Invariably, this is what happens. It goes to the most vulnerable populations. Well, just uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Charles. And yeah, let me just a make comment. a comment about the virus itself, yeah, yeah. though. Sure. These are just two really quick points. One is um, that uh, we are going to see a couple of things. I mean, I, I don't know for sure. Slim is obviously a brilliant epidemiologist I've known for many years, but um, I think the question is uh, this virus, there's no question that the virus can continue to become more transmissible or breakthrough. I mean, the only way it's going to continue is by what the uh, influenza virus does every year, that is break through our immune uh, defenses. But the other thing that can happen, and we just don't understand what's going to happen here, is that uh, occasional Omicron-like breakthrough uh, virus that evolves separately. And in that respect, even the best virologists, such as Trevor Bedford and others, can't predict that there's a 5 to 10% chance, for example, 
that there may be a really radical shift in the virus so that there can not only be an increase in immune evasion, but also virulence. And that's something we can't predict and speaks to what Peter said about having better uh, hybrid vaccines. Great. A couple uh, thoughts here just in passing before I move on. First of all, just a, a, a comment that we have passed apparently the 1 million death mark in the United States, uh, kind of a sober um, a milestone. And, and who knows if it, that's even an undercount. Um, and as Carlos and Bonnie have both mentioned, you know, internationally, much, much worse, obviously. Um, but but promise, you know, you know Paul, ahead, one, one thing to remind ourselves is that those deaths have occurred, most of those deaths, the great majority, have occurred after we have vaccines. And those right. deaths have occurred in people who have not been vaccinated. So the reality is that's what really makes it very unfortunate is that the great majority of those deaths were in fact preventable. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, uh, I wanna uh, ask um, uh, another question to Peter. Before I do, I, I, I like looking at the list of participants. Um, number of my friends and colleagues uh, pop up on that and I promise not to kind of call you out too much, uh, but uh, I see Henry Sachs, who's a real hero in, uh, in the HIV world, and Mallory Witt from, uh, from LA, another, another person that, uh, that I truly respect, uh, and others on the list, but, uh, but welcome to all of you. Um, so really quickly, um, Peter, uh, before I want to go then next really to Bonnie and go back to the pediatric uh, issues, but um, a question has come up in the, in the chat uh, about uh, HIV and COVID. This has been talked about forever, I know, but what's your bottom line on the intersection between HIV and COVID? Uh, do people with HIV have a worse risk, worst outcome, especially people with, with relatively intact CD4 counts? Um, so far, the data shows that, and maybe Carlos uh, and Bonnie can uh, modify that uh, or, or add to that as well. That, there isn't really any additional risk um, in a non-surge situation to HIV. This really is lack of access to regular primary care uh, is probably the, the biggest uh, outcome that's uh, uh, you know consequence of, of having the pandemic so far. And uh, the risk is really in, you know, if, if we really had to pick a subpopulation, it's really, of course, the heavily uh, immunosuppressed, that is low T cells, um, but but HIV transplant uh, in particular is, you know, has a much higher risk than the general population. So I think if it's a great, in general, HIV patients have been doing okay in, in my purview, uh, just um, again, with disruptions in primary care, that's been like the biggest consequence to me. Great. And when we get uh, to my, one of my next areas uh, where we, I want to spend some time talking about uh, treatment, um, including obviously Paxlovid, that's where HIV um, patients and their providers might have some uh, experience with that, uh, with that combination with some of the questions that are coming up. But before we get to, uh, to it, uh, uh, COVID-19 treatment, Bonnie, um, so I introduced this by saying, Lots of questions, uh, you know, um, and you know, you know the questions as well as I do. Uh, why don't you just give us a, a few minute a walkthrough of your uh, top issues with pediatric COVID right now, including treatment and vaccines? Okay, so uh, really quick. Um, so basically, we know that children make up about a quarter of the U.S. population. That is, children under eighteen. 
currently the status is that um, anybody under 18 can only right now have access to the Pfizer vaccine. And that is approved uh, with a BLA for 16 and older and under EUA for five and older. Um, Moderna submitted their data on 12 to 17 year olds last June, so almost a year now. And because of issues around myocarditis review, not that there's terrible signals, but I think FDA has been really focusing on looking at signals around myocarditis, which have been stable since last year. I think the, the 12 to 17 year olds have not yet been approved either under EUA or BLA, but it's expected that that will happen in the next month or so. Um, the, um, for the Moderna vaccine uh, as well, the five to uh, 12 year, five to 11 year olds are, uh, sorry, the six to 11 year olds are gonna be reviewed. And for both vaccines, for both the Pfizer and the Moderna, uh, we expect that by June, there will be at least two, maybe three FDA VRPAC uh, advisory committee meetings regarding vaccines for kids uh, five and six years old and, and under, as well as for Moderna, all of the approval reviews for kids all the way through 18. So we think that it has been a little while, but part of that had to do with the nature of the way pediatric trials run. We have to do the oldest individuals first. There were signals early on for myocarditis um, in the older kids, that is the 16 to 29 year olds that slowed things down because they needed to collect more safety data. And that, which by the way, we haven't seen for the under 12 year olds. So the signals have been really crystal clear for the under 12 and no signals for myocarditis there. Um, and then finally, uh, it, you need to use a lower dose in the phase one trials that we're, uh, full disclosure, we're doing the Pfizer trials here at Stanford as well. You need to use a, a lower dose for kids under 12 and an even lower dose for kids under five, under five because of the um, higher risk for high fevers in, with the higher doses. And the same for Moderna. So those studies all take more time. Uh, there isn't any slowdown really. It's just been a matter of having to adapt um, for those. So we think there should be at least one, maybe both vaccines available for under five-year-olds by June um, by FDA approval. And then hopefully CDC will jump in pretty quickly. Let me interrupt to say, sure. ask if there's a if there's a single site that you would refer people to. Is there a website that um, yeah. kind of does the best job of putting this together that you could share with people? Yeah, so I think the best place to look. Uh, I'm a pediatrician, so I'm going to refer yeah, yeah. you to the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, AAP.org. They have a whole site. You don't have to be a member. Usually, you do have to be a member to get in there, but now they've opened it up. Anybody can go in. There's a whole COVID section and there's a COVID disease section as well as a COVID vaccine section. You can find graphs, tables, all of the information you need. We put out statements on a regular basis and update them every 30 days to make sure, or sooner, uh, to make sure they're up to date. So aap.org. Great, super, super. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry, sorry for interrupting, but I'd, yeah, like no. you to talk, I'd like you to talk a little bit about treatment. Um, yeah. You know, so, Paxlovid, monoclonals, kind of what's available and can you do use something that's not approved even with an EUA or is it really, is that really a problem? Yeah, so it was a problem. We had been talking to FDA about, you know, really keeping children front of mind because while the disease is not more severe in kids than in adults, we do have children who are immunocompromised or who can be 
have progressive disease and much of the antiviral uh, landscape has really been for adults. But we do have some, um, of course, Omicron took away a lot of our options, but we have two pretty decent options right now and only one actually for kids under 12. So if a child is 12 and older, they can get Paxlovid at the regular dose. Um, so the indications there are fine and that works out really well. And the indications are similar to for adults and that is for those with mild to moderate symptoms or hospitalized who have risk for progression to serious illness with those underlying conditions. The other treatment for kids under 12, the only thing available, this just came up at the end of April, fortunately for us is now there is expanded emergency use authorization for remdesivir for children 28 days and older. Now that's much more complicated, but at the same time, there are some high risk individuals who are children. And so that's where we are now. And we're hoping to see more expansion of other drugs. Great, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, and we can get uh, we can get back to this. I think before I turn to uh, Carlos to start the next discussion, uh, looking at the chat, a couple questions now. Um, how long does natural immunity last? How long after an unvaccinated person, do we have the uh, bottom line with that yet? Um, and how well do the tests work against the current variant? So whoever wants to take those uh, quick questions. Um, duration of immunity and um, effectiveness of testing against new variants. Well, you know, the problem with duration of immunity is also what is immunity and what is natural immunity? Because right. clearly, clearly, if you get, if you get infected with, with, with the, when you got infected by, let's say, Delta, you didn't get protected against Omicron. When you got infected with Omicron, BA1, it's good for another BA1 infection, but it doesn't protect you against BA2, BA3, BA4. So it's it's less the duration and more what are you get, what what you you're you're confronting. Now, what is good that if you had natural infection with Omicron and you're vaccinated, you have really good protection. So those of us that have not yet been infected but were vaccinated are actually don't have as good protection as those that have sort of hybrid immunity, were infected and vaccinated, or vaccinated and infected. So each individual is a bit different. If you're talking about somebody who has been vaccinated and infected, they've got pretty good immunity, much better than probably somebody who's just been vaccinated with three or four doses or whatever you want, but yet has not been infected. So at some point in time, you know, I think many of us are hoping to get that, that, that mild infection that will get us to that new opportunity of having, you know, uh, hybrid immunity, but at the same time, do you really want to get infected? I don't, yeah. and and therefore, you yeah. know, we continue yeah. to protect ourselves. So it's a bit it's a bit challenging to know that, you know, the, the silver lining of having been infected is that if you're vaccinated, you get very good protection. But if you really need to know what you were infected with to really understand what the protection is is about. Great, and and the antigen tests. Uh, well, so uh, the antigen test that goes all over the place. You know, Diane Havler and her group did a very nice study that is published in the Annals, showing that. When you have people with a, with a cycle threshold under 30, the rapid tests work really well. Uh, there is a study that, that recently came out looking at healthcare workers, all of them vaccinated, all of them boosted. And, and yes, uh, they, they, the rapid tests don't perform as well because they're vaccinated and boosted. So they tend to have less sensitivity in those settings. But again, I tell people, you know, if you're, if you're gonna have infectious virus, i.e. your cycle threshold in a PCR is gonna be less than 30, your rapid test is probably gonna be positive. So is the rapid test better? Yes, yeah, more sensitive, 
but it doesn't tell you necessarily that you're infectious. It just tells you that you have virus at that moment. My, my advice to people is if you have symptoms, do a rapid test. If it's negative, consider doing a PCR or repeat the rapid test you know, 24 hours later because frequently the test will become positive then. And the cycle less than 30 just means it's a higher titer of the- uh, of Yeah, the, more, more, more infectious virus. Yeah, it pops up earlier in the-, in the uh, Correct. Just as a point of reference, so if you're not vaccinated and boosted, you tend to have CT values that can actually be detected as you know as high as 35, meaning your viral load is much right, lower. Right. So. Okay, so um, I, I, there are a lot of questions, um, and I think each of our discussants can kind of weigh in on this, but I'd like Carlos to start. So um, treatment, um, what's the bottom line? Um, and let me just pose a question. So, I, and I know you've been traveling more internationally. Um, let's say that somebody travels a lot um, and they're kind of nervous. Um, should they be carrying, um, let's just say Paxlovid pills in their luggage? Um, I know it's not exactly approved, but what's your What's your thought without revealing what you do yourself? So here's, here are a couple of my thoughts. I think that you know initially when Paxlovid became available, and again, we're, I'm gonna limit only to Paxlovid because I don't think Molnupiravir is as effective. And, and I also think that you know obviously monoclonals, it's a very challenging environment with monoclonals and you really only have one that maybe works, but let's limit to Paxlovid as, as an effective oral therapy. Uh, when it initially came out, there was a lot of issues about, you know, we need to prioritize people. There's not a lot of availability. Uh, then we also had a lot of discussion about the drug-drug interactions. As the government has bought Paxlovid, I checked this morning, you know, in the way the Asper has, there, there are over 750,000 full courses of Paxlovid available in U.S. pharmacies. The supply is much higher than the demand right now. And many people are being diagnosed with COVID are not being prescribed Paxlovid. So the first message to, to, you know, to providers in general is if you have somebody who's diagnosed with COVID, you, you need to think about Paxlovid and it's a very easy way to decide this. Uh, the FDA has put together a, a checklist, uh, IDSA together today put together a, a checklist to help people manage drug-drug interactions. It's actually not that complicated. But we need to get people prescribed a lot more Paxlovid. Now, the other question that you have is, and we can talk about the failures and other things later. But the other question is, your question is, if I'm traveling, what would I do? Well, you know, in an ideal world, I would carry with me some rapid test and some Paxlovid because if I'm in, in overseas and I'm internationally and I get infected, you know, I've read too many stories of somebody, you went for a, you know, one week vacation and then you end up having to stay another week because you're, uh, because right. you're, you got infected, and you know, it, that's uh, disruptive. And it's also expensive. So if I could take a drug that will help me clear the infection faster and maybe return to the U.S. faster, I would certainly do that. Now that indication is not approved at this point in time. Uh, it's something that I think hopefully at some point in time will will be th thought about. But it's all about starting therapy quickly, right? It's all about getting diagnosed and starting therapy within five days of diagnosis. And that's our biggest challenge: is how do we get people treated quickly, diagnosed and treated quickly. And as I said, even you know, with all the supply we have right now, we're just not doing that in the US. It's very frustrating. Well, I agree with Carlos that I think the issue is that at a population level, we need to be thinking better about not just focusing on the highest risk people, 
but how do we reduce the viral load in the population at large? It's kind of like what we said last two years ago, what a year and a half ago, when we talked about rapid testing to reduce population risk. And I think not only does this affect the individual, but if you start treating people earlier and you make it available, not just in the US, but at all places, or, you know, places all around the world, cheap uh, um, antivirals, you can reduce, hopefully reduce viral load rapidly. We're seeing that happen anecdotally where people are getting Paxlovid and their rapid tests become negative within 48 hours. So this is a way to reduce circulation and to reduce symptoms. And um, I think that needs to be looked at at a population basis. So it strikes me with yeah. goodness that, that we also should maybe be really, along with getting people thinking about treatment, be getting people thinking a lot more about testing. Um, especially as the current illness might be relatively mild. Peter, thoughts on- Yeah, I mean, I think this is all well and good to talk about why we need to use it. But the point is there's still significant barriers to people getting it, yeah. uh, uh, including you know, lack of knowledge, even in, in providers in the community, mis you know, mixed messaging, uh, people not testing, as you said, not you know, having to get a prescription before you go to the drugstore, although some of the one-stop shopping drive-throughs now where you can get tested, then get a prescription and get drugs at the same time is probably going to be the way to do it. And then somebody has to check drug interactions. So, you know, I think that uh, because we don't have a national healthcare system, we don't have a national healthcare information system, uh, it's, you know, these are barriers that have to be, um, you know, overcome before we can really implement tests to treat. So one of the questions I know has been tossed around publicly, and it's in the in the Q and A as well, is what about rebound after Paxlovid? Is there kind of is there a downside to be treating early if uh, if a fair number of people end up getting a rebound? Uh, thoughts on that? Any any of you? Uh, maybe start with Peter. Yeah. So rebound is something that's really interesting. It's something that uh, I've been called with uh, recently. Uh, for example, there are two scenarios. One is somebody who's getting treated with Paxlovid. They get feel better. Uh, their antigen actually goes from positive to negative, like Bonnie mentioned, in a very quick period of time, maybe 24 to 48 hours. And then they keep on checking and then they're, they're uh, antigen test turns positive, but they're feeling better. So in that scenario, I think it's pretty straightforward. The only risk is, of course, does that positive mean that they're still transmissible? And, and that's probably uh, something that still needs to be worked out. Probably we'll assume that for the timing. The second scenario is more uh, worrisome or interesting, and that's somebody who's feeling better clinically. Their antigen test turns negative, but then they start getting that sore throat uh, fever, um, you know, congestion again, uh, and their positive tests again. And in that case, uh, is it an, a super infection bacteria? Is it return of viral load? Uh, when you look at the Paxlovid studies, actually people in both placebo and treatment groups who actually rebound with viral load after the, you know, between day five and 10, but it's the vast minority. And so it is a phenomenon. Uh, we're just paying more attention to it now. Nobody knows what to do. Do you give them a longer course? Yeah, do you well, just watch and wait, et cetera? Yeah, and that's one of the questions on the, on the Q&A. Um, uh, should we be, maybe especially in the uncertainty of the new variant, should we be thinking about increasing the duration of, of Paxlovid uh, treatment? Um, 
and then uh, again open for anyone. Um, uh, and somebody. Oh, asked, I would just say. I would just what say about what about drug? Carlos, one second. What about drug interactions? Uh, uh, so you know? I would I would say first of all, I I don't think at this point in time increasing the uh, uh, the duration of treatment is is warranted or is is something that I I would support. I think if you have what what uh, what Peter mentioned, you really truly have a, a relapse or a recurrence. Maybe treating again makes sense. I would give a, a shout out to our friend, to our colleague Paul Sachs, and his in his HIV and ID observations blog this past week and the, and the week before. He's written a lot about this this Pax, this Paxlovid treatment uh, relapses, and and I think it's really worth reading what he wrote. He's very very been very very thoughtful about this. You know, the drug drug interactions is, is an issue that everybody's concerned about. And, and again, I, I remind people they're really only among the 200 most prescribed drugs, there are really only two that have interactions severe enough with Paxlovid that needs to be avoided altogether. And those are uh, rivaroxaban and Sometrol. Other than that, well, other drugs that you can have. And remind us, uh, Carlos, of what those drugs exactly are, maybe brand names or... Yeah, well, you know, rivaroxaban is... A, it's an antiplatelet. It's, it's, it's an anti, anti, antiplatelet agent, right? Xarelto, uh, uh, it's an antiplatelet yeah. agent, it's an anticoagulant, and, and there is a significant risk, risk of, uh, of, uh, of having uh, uh, bleeding. bleeding if you use this drug uh, together with, with, with Paxlova because of the ritonavir. So, so that's why it's not recommended. So metrol is a long- and let, me, let me just say, Carlos, let me interrupt to say that I, I do stand corrected. It's, I, I should know as a hemon person that it's not an antiplatelet drug. So mm -hmm. go ahead, sorry. Thanks to the Q&A for uh, correcting. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. So, so metrol is a long acting bronchodilator, right? And it's a, it's a, it's it's one of the bronchodilators. And again, because of the drug drug interaction, it should be avoided because you could potentially have a uh, a uh, <clears throat> an Addisonian crisis if you if you if you use them. But other than that, you really don't have all other drugs you can actually manage. And one that I hear frequently is, for example, statins. Well, the patients on a statin, what do I do? I just tell people to stop the statins and. Uh, for for the course of the of the treatment, and then for five days after that, yeah, and in sure. most patients you can do that. I mean, except in somebody who recently had a heart attack, you may not do that. But everybody else, you can do. If somebody's taking, uh, you know, warfarin, I mean, you monitor the INR and you do drug, those adjustments, but you can do it. So most other drugs you can actually do that. And again, I, I mentioned that uh, with IDSA, we put together a resource for the management of drug drug interactions with with Paxlovid. That has just been posted in the IDSA website, and I recommend people take a look at it because I think we tried to make it as simple as possible. It's a very nice website. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's very nice. So Carlos, for people who really do don't feel don't the, feel uncomfortable with the drug drug interactions, you want to talk really about Evusheld for for the immunocompromised because this population probably yeah. And before that, can I just give a, my own little spin on Paxlovid too for drug interactions? I think what I've started telling my patients and people is to have a plan before something happens. So like find out where you'll get a Paxlovid, find out if your drugs interact so that when, if something happens, you'll know exactly what to do. And particularly for transplant drugs, you look on the website and they'd say, you know, that you get a, like a red bar, but actually there are ways like Carlos is saying, the only two drugs we really worry about, but everything else is workable and don't be deterred by what you might find uh, on these resources. So and again, uh, if, you, if, if you're a high risk person, honestly, 
I would say, you know, make sure you know what your serum creatinine is so you can call your physician and say, hey, you know, I tested positive and my creatinine is normal. These are the drugs I take. It's, it's pretty easy to do this. And again, I think we, we, we need to make it easy and we need to make it accessible. And what Peter says, you know, it should, it really needs to be almost a, I mean, how can we, I feel like we need to do a, a lean process to try to yeah, make that yeah. bit easy to access. But all I have to do is stop my uh, torvastatin when I start the Paxlovid and start it five days after I stop, right? <laughs> that's, that's how we think about this. Uh, let, let me, um, uh, uh, first of all, uh, I want to get to back to Bonnie because I want her to address the issue of the hepatitis in peds that we've been, uh, that we've been hearing a lot about in the news. Uh, but, but once again, uh, Peter, um, question in the, in the chat is, uh, somebody really severely immunocompromised. And I know you really focus on that in your clinical practice. Uh, how, how do you think about uh, those patients, you know, advanced cancer, chemotherapy, the rest, uh, in terms of, uh, of vaccinations and boosters? You want to give us a quick summary of that? Yeah, so for me, uh, I think about immunocompromised as a continuous scale. So that, you know, I think we have been used to think of it as a monolith and a dialogue. So again, as we know in this audience, the very, very immune compromised are the ones I'm most worried about. So those are people who are recently transplanted, allo BMTs, not even just autos, and then people on rituximab or any anti-B cell therapy or people who have B cell dyscrasias like multiple myeloma. So I think those people, you know, some of them, you can vaccinate them a million times and they won't get uh, antibody response. So you really have to think about, have you shelled in that matter? And we've been kind of shy about checking uh, spike antibodies. We don't even have like national guidelines, but I would say like privately, a lot of people are checking them just to know a litmus test. So again, you can get, you know, the, based on the assay, uh, you know, 50 in national units is one that people use as above that is reassuring, below that it's less so. So again, you add one to the national guidelines for the number of shots. But at some point, if they're not capable of making antibodies, you have to think about giving them Evusheld. And of course, now there's a study recently showing that BA4 and BA5 may not uh, work for Evusheld. Well, Evusheld may not work for that. So again, it's a moving target with these monoclonal antibodies. So stay, stay in touch about that. This has been, I think the monoclonals have been confusing right from the start. Yeah, but, the, but this is really a game changer for some of those individuals because Evusheld has continued so far to be really effective. We have a number of, of not only adult, but pediatric patients are extremely immunocompromised um, and they have zero neutralizing antibodies. As you said, we sometimes do check, but whether you check or not, I mean, I would just move ahead. If they're immunocompromised, you're, they're sitting ducks. And we know that the data so far, at least you saw the top line data supports the fact that Evusheld is protective against severe disease up to 83% for as long as six months now. And we don't know if that'll, that will extend. So it's a really great opportunity. And, in, and monoclonal therapy is something we've been doing for, for decades for all yeah. age groups. I don't want to diminish enthusiasm either. I'm like totally a big supporter of it. And um, I think the other thing that we did in response to BA2 is increase the dose of Evusheld. Uh, it's two yes. shots, uh, one time, one stop shopping, you're in and out, uh, the patient is in and out. So I think uh, very highly recommended. We're not using it a lot. If you think we're not using Paxlovid, we're not using Evusheld even more. <laughs> not using it even more. It's kind of a double negative. Um, so um, Bonnie, um, so, 
a topic that I found very interesting, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have, is this report of, of hepatitis in kids. And I think especially there was an outbreak in Alabama. Yeah. Um, you want to talk ab about that? Is that, is that yeah. um yeah, it's uh, so it's it is worrisome. I don't know, you know, I don't know if any of you recall that we had an outbreak of uh, enterovirus D sixty eight um, acute flaccid myelitis several years ago. And we've been tracking that, and so far, so that's been quiescent as of since the pandemic began. But now we have adenovirus forty forty one. This is primarily forty one, and these are the two adenoviruses that are primarily gastrointestinal adenoviruses. The rest are most more likely to be respiratory or other. And they're very common. They represent about 10% of diarrheal disease in children all around the world. I remember one of my first R01 studies when I was a brand new faculty member looking at a diarrheal disease in children in the Northern Highlands of Chiapas among Mayan kids. And it was accounted uh, for about 20% of the diarrheal disease in kids uh, there. And certainly that's true around the world. But the issue is we don't test for it because it's not, there's nothing you're going to do. There's no vaccine against it, um, and it really um, it's it doesn't cause severe disease. What's really unfortunate here with this um, particular um, outbreak is that there have been over 200, maybe 250 cases. It's hard to keep count now because they're continuing to do active surveillance around the world. Um, there's about two. WHO said about 250 cases worldwide um, where people can look for it. Um, in the U.S., we have about 109 cases so far. We're expanding the case definition now. And so the idea is a child who has liver failure with a, a transaminase over 500. Um, and, um, and, and so in about half of the kids where they've had data, they have had um, evidence either in stool or in um, serologic evidence of adenovirus 41. Um, but uh, adenovirus 41 has never been associated in healthy immunocompetent kids with um, he he hepatitis. And this is fulminant hepatitis. So about 20% of the kids in the US, so about 19, 20 of the kids here in the US needed required liver transplantation and there was one death. So these are pretty significant cases. We don't know. I haven't seen any information about, they have, there have been sequencing data available, but no, uh, no data around any sequence variability. So is this really 41? Is it a cofactor? Is there an intoxication? We don't know. None of these cases are related. The first cases reported were in October at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and there were nine cases in total in retrospective um, review. One of my colleagues is a, is a, a PEDS ID there, and uh, they weren't related at all. There was no epidemiologic link. Um, and um, not everybody has had, apparently, according to the histopathology, I've seen data from about three cases. There is no evidence of uh, adenovirus 41 in the histopath of the liver biopsy. So it's really not clear what's going on here. It's really frightening. It's the kids are under mostly two and under. So it's not related to COVID vaccine because that's what we've been hearing. Uh, these are not children who've been vaccinated because they're too young. And as far as we know, most of the cases have not been related to COVID disease either. Although that is an intriguing question that still is under investigation by CDC and WHO. Got it. And there are reports from Europe as well, I think. Yes, all, all over the world, Europe, US, places where they can actually look for ADNO41. So. Yeah. so going back to the drug-drug interactions, uh, Carlos or Peter, um, one of the questions is what about Eliquis along with um, 
Xarelta, uh, other uh, anticoagulants, any, is the same thing there or is that a different issue? I mean, I can start with Eliquis. I believe Eliquis is related to the dose. So like if it's a high dose, then it's a little bit more, uh, you need to be a little bit more worried and look at levels. But if it's a low dose, it's a little bit easier. But like Carlos was saying, even uh, many of us don't remember the actual uh, things that you do with specific drugs. But to start off with a departure of looking at the website, but not stopping there, like for me, like I just start that off as a guide. And then I talk to one of our pharmacists. Hopefully people will have access to a pharmacist or somebody who knows a pharmacist in an academic center because they can help push general. For example, if you look at uh, some of the transplant meds like, uh, you know, uh, cyclosporin and tacrolimus, they say be worried about it. But actually we many places have developed a way around that. Got it. Carlos, anything else to add to that? Yeah, I think pretty pretty much Peter has covered very nicely. Okay, great, 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 great. So uh, another question going back to uh, uh, Paxlovid. <laughs> any any uh, sense that treatment um, changes the outcome that I think most people are most concerned about, which is long uh, long COVID? Is there is there any? I mean, I'm sure it's pretty early to guess, but uh, what do we know about the effect of treatment on longer term um, complications? Well, we don't know, right? I mean, I think it's 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 right now it's totally theoretical. We really don't know, and uh, and I think it's. Uh, I mean, you would imagine that if you control viral replication, you probably are going to be able to uh, to avoid a long term uh, uh, long COVID. So I I would say the data is not there, but you know, pathogenesis, pathophysiology suggests to me that it will do yeah. that. But again, so, we need data to, to show that that's going to be the case. Right. So I was just on a call this morning with my colleagues, uh, my pediatric colleagues. Um, and um, I, my understanding is that Diane Griffin at Hopkins, one of my former mentors, is actually, and actually identified an incomplete uh, viral, um, uh, incomplete viral replication of measles as a cause of subacute sclerosing panencephalitis is actually trying to see if she can actually identify whether or not uh, SARS-CoV-2 has any kind of a reservoir that we don't know about, and maybe uh, maybe linked in to some case. Obviously, long COVID is a protein non-specific list, but she's actually apparently looking into that. And I don't know if Diane's on, but um, we're hoping that she might be able to give us more clues because she's really great at uh, at this area around in the in terms of measles virus and looking at neurocognitive uh, deficits. And to Bonnie's, just extending a little bit on Bonnie's, I completely yeah. agree. There are two sort of like main schools of thought about long COVID. One is you generate a lot of autoantibodies and it attacks the body. And the other is virus reservoir that uh, continues to like make the body angry and have this immune response. And if it's that second thing, then Paxlovid might actually work not only to prevent long COVID, but actually in long COVID sufferers. And anecdotally, a lot of people in the underground, uh, I wouldn't try this at home, but there have been anecdotes of people with long COVID taking Paxlovid. Uh, I think a big area of investigation as Bonnie has alluded to. Great. Um, I'm going back to the questions that we had from the uh, participants before we started. And one of them is kind of interesting. Uh, can vaccinated asymptomatic persons spread the disease if infected? What do you yes. mean about the yes, transmissibility? Yes. So even if you've been vaccinated, you've gotten an asymptomatic yeah. infection, you're still transmissible. 
Yeah, we've been doing uh, household transmission studies here. We have since uh, middle of 2020, and we just uh, joined the CDC uh, household transmission network. And what we are seeing is that um, that people can transmit. By the way, if you look at challenge studies, I, we were talking about this. So there's a, a study in the UK. It's still, still a preprint of 32 people who got who 18 to 29 year old healthy people who volunteered to get a wild type challenge. 65% uh, of those people um, were infected. So out of those, not everybody got infected, but of the ones who got infected, about 19 or 53% actually were symptomatic. The others were not. There was no difference in viral load between the, now the numbers are tiny, but we're also seeing that in household transmission. Um, your viral load really doesn't change very much. Um, uh, and, and even if it is, we don't really have a lower threshold yet. We don't know what the lower threshold is for transmission, but there can still be transmission from an asymptomatic individual for sure. And obviously we think it's lower, but it's not zero. So there's a, go ahead, go ahead, Carlos. But I think the other thing that is interesting in, is that there was recently a study completed looking at uh, using Paxlovid for prevention and it doesn't work for prevention. Didn't work. And again, that's why we need studies. That was that's why we need clinical that's trials. That's a great, great point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one, an issue that we talked about in our last of these discussions, but uh, I think it's still out there, and uh, it's being asked by by Mo Silverman. Uh, uh, what about you know? We we talked a little bit earlier in this call about the uh, about the you know in quotes now natural immunity, the, the type of immunity that results from infection as opposed to vaccines being in some sense kind of more vigorous. Um, what about this idea, again, of mixing and matching uh, different uh, uh, vaccines to try to get to some of that? Um, uh, do we, are you a Moderna person or a Pfizer person or should we be uh, kind of hybrids? Any thoughts on that? Well, I asked, uh, I mean, I've been, we've been talking to colleagues at the um, advisory committees and uh, others and I, the data is really not very firm. I mean, we know there's a big, there was an NIH study that looked at mix and match. And I think we all saw that last year and hasn't been updated yet, but it seems at least plausible to think that um, mixing and matching at least could expose you to different um, uh, cross-reactive antibodies. So at least in theory that it's not, it's definitely not harmful for what we've seen in the early studies. There were 50 people in each arm that is mixing and matching. At the time it was three and three, so JJ and the two mRNA vaccines. Uh, so it'll be, interesting. it'll be interesting to see what happens with Novavax next month. Yeah. Uh, that's coming up on Jan June 7th for review. So it may come up as a, another topic. We did ask uh, to, we've been asking our federal agencies, please address mix and match a little better, give us more data. So maybe that'll come up, but there's no theoretical reason why it shouldn't help at least give you some uh, additional um, protection. And the companies are probably not gonna wanna on their own uh, yeah. try to do those trials. I'm not sure what it reflects about me, but I decided to stay with the same vaccine throughout. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> um, we're, we're really near the end of our time. Um, and I always like to make sure we have enough time to thank the audience um, for, for participating. Again, we had over 300 people sign up. Um, uh, not quite uh, half of those uh, actually are on the call today, but still, it's a really great turnout for uh, for this dialogue. Uh, we've decided we're going to do it again, at least one more time. Um, I keep giving uh, giving the ISUSA and our 
uh, panelists the option of saying, oh, I've had enough. Uh, but I think I think we still are still have a lot of questions and they're really important. Well, Paul, there's gonna be at least four FDA meetings next month. So okay. one, and so we probably will have at least something to, <laughs> to talk I think about. we're gonna have plenty to talk about. I think there'll be plenty to say. So uh, but but thanks to the to the participants, it's you know it's you are why we're here and uh, and thanks to Donna Jacobson and um, and the ISUSA um, uh, staff uh, for uh, for really behind the scenes making sure this all happens and you know I'll say as a moderator and a participant it's just seamless so it's it's easy for us and we love doing it um, and I think do we have a, a Jose do we have a slides of upcoming stuff that we can uh, direct people to. Um, a big uh, virtual uh, symposium on Wednesday the 20th that's going to go into a lot of these uh, uh, in, in details. Uh, so uh, so do, do uh, watch for that. Go to the website. Uh, we also have a question of the week for HIV clinicians, and our next one is going to uh, deal with COVID issues. So, uh, so go on and, uh, and check that out as well. So again, uh, uh, Carlos, Peter, Bonnie, you guys are just rock. Um, and, and it's really a great uh, to have your perspectives on this. And, uh, and thanks, everyone, and have a great, uh, have a great weekend. Have Talk a great Mother's Day. Oh, Mother's, Mother's Day, Day here in the U.S. Yep. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Thank you all again. What a great one. Thank you, guys. Good discussion. Yeah, that was, that was really Good weekend. Bye, everybody. Very quickly. Yeah, bye. It does. Bye. Carlos, I'm drafting for you. I'm just doing a quick draft so you can poke all sorts of holes in it for the question of the week. Okay, and I just was gonna tell you that I just talked to Kim, just send me something that says, uh, sorry for the delay. I, I, I should have a, a deduplicated EndNote library and Excel list back to you early next week. Wonderful. Okay. Wonderful. So I'm just like picking out, you, you, you pick out the drugs you think that people right. are- okay. And uh, thank, thank you for doing that. And thank you for doing okay. this. Bye.